Thank you, Butch and Pam. I love the old Christmas hymns, and that last hymn has probably been a decade since I've sung that one, and that brought back really good memories of being at my parents' church, my grandparents' church as well. So thank you very much for that. The text this morning is going to be from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Let me read those to us. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he'll be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is the word of God. You can be seated. And while you're being seated, will you bow with me? Father, we're grateful for the fact that we have your word. We're grateful for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us, Lord, and I pray thanking you most of all that you just you didn't only reveal yourself to us in the truths of scripture you came to us in the form of a man the man Jesus Christ Lord I pray that this morning you would please help us all to love him more walk in greater obedience to him and be led by spirit Help me to teach the truth rightly, and please help us to receive it rightly. And I pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. We're beginning a sermon series this morning that I'm calling The Advent. That's what the whole series is going to be called, The Advent. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or appearance. Now, the advent of Christ, of course, is the time of year when we focus on the arrival, namely the birth of Jesus Christ, and we remember it again, we celebrate it again, and with God's help, we continue to grow in our wonder and amazement of it all, of course, with the goal of growing in our love and devotion to our Lord Jesus for who He is and and what He's done for us. So we're blessed, very blessed, to live in a culture that corporately refocuses 
on the birth of Jesus Christ at this time of year every year. That's a blessing, a huge blessing. And my job as a pastor is actually made a little bit easier at this time every year because, number one, I, I know what I'm going to be uh, teaching on. And, and number two, I know exactly where I need to study in the scriptures. But I also have the responsibility, of course, to keep bringing these wonderful truths to you year after year in a way that doesn't feel unoriginally prepackaged, that doesn't feel canned, that doesn't come across as just cookie cutter of the same things year after year. Thankfully, the primary tool that I use as a minister is the Word of God, which is inexhaustible, incomprehensible, it's active, it's living, its riches will never be fully mined, and it's a well that will never run dry. So that's good news that this truth that we refocus on every single year can be looked at like a beautiful gem that has so many facets to it. And I hope that with this sermon series, it will help you focus on the truth of Christmas, the truth of the Advent, and see it a little bit differently, grow in your love a little bit more, and be even more devoted to Jesus. So the series is going to be made up of four total messages. The one this morning I've titled, uh, The Advent, The King is on His Way. The next sermon will be called, The Advent, Light Out of Darkness. The third sermon, The Advent, God Becomes Man. And then fourthly, the last sermon of the series is going to be called The Advent, Turning Everything Upside Down. So this is what we have to look forward to, and I hope with God's help it is a true blessing to you. So let's discuss this morning's topic. The king is on his way. God is on his way. You notice that our text started us off. It doesn't mention Jerusalem, but it does mention that Zechariah was in the temple. So we know we are in Jerusalem with a priest and his wife. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth are said to be, in verse 6, righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And what does that mean? This is not to be understood as saying that they were perfect, that they were sinless. It does mean, however, that they were devout. They were upright. They truly believed the scriptures, and purposefully chose to live by them with sincere faith. Now, Luke also purposely mentions two other things about this couple in verse 7. Number one, that Elizabeth is unable to have children. Number two, that both of them were advanced in years. Did you pick up on that when we read that earlier? He's purposefully mentioning more details about them. Why? Well, I think there are some intentional parallels that the Holy Spirit is making here and is inspiring Luke to write these words. I believe we're supposed to be reminded of another elderly couple that we've read about before in the past, namely in the book of Genesis. You probably already noticed some similarities in both couples' situations. Of course, I'm talking about Abraham and Sarah 
as compared to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Did you pick up on the fact that both couples, we're told in Scripture, were advanced in years? That was made very clear in Genesis, how old they were when they had a baby, Abraham and Sarah, I'm talking about. Both women are barren. Also, both couples were the beginning of something greater. What do I mean? Well, God gives Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac, which is how the story of Israel begins, right? The nation of God's chosen people. And it's through Abraham and Sarah that the Lord prepares a people for himself. The nation of Israel came through them. And it's through Zechariah and Elizabeth that the Lord brings John the Baptist. It's John who prepares the way for the Christ, who is the Savior for God's chosen people. The parallels are just, in my opinion, a little too similar to be a coincidence. Um, And we do well to take notice of them. I think we're supposed to draw these connections, realize that the Holy Spirit like I said, purposely inspired Luke to mention these things. He didn't have to write these things, but he did. These truths needed to be pointed out. These parallels need to be made. We're supposed to take note of this because God is doing something big again at this time. Well, as you recall, Zechariah is a priest, and so we read in verses 8 through 10. Look at verses 8 through 10 now. While he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, it says he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. What's this about? Well, R.C. Sproul had a really good note about this to help us understand this a bit better. He says, The large number of priests serving the one temple meant that a priest's opportunity for taking part in the ritual were few. He might not offer incense more than once in his life. This was the high point in Zechariah's career. He would go into the holy place with other priests, but they would withdraw, leaving him alone to perform the offering. So Zechariah is chosen by Lot. What does that mean? We don't use Lot's much in this day or ever, really, but we don't know exactly what form it took, but they were something like kind of like dice, but don't picture them just casting dice in your head. But it was something sort of like that. But they believed and knew that the Lord used this process. They actually even used that process to choose the apostle who would replace Judas. They even did that in the book of Acts. But this is how they perceived the Lord's will when choosing who would offer the incense that day. And it falls to Zechariah. He goes in there to offer incense. And as you might recall, inside the temple, the altar of incense stood right in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. This curtain would be beautifully colored, extremely tall, embroidered immaculately. But it would be separating him from, of course, the most holy place presence of the Lord. So he's standing there offering the incense, the incense that replicates and signifies the prayers of his people going up before him as a pleasing aroma. And all of the sudden, he's not alone anymore. 
He's in this pretty dimly lit room. Only the menorah would be lit in there with its seven candles illuminating the place. And then there is someone else in there with him. It's there that we get the first recorded angelic appearance in the New Testament. First chronologically, at least. This is the first angelic appearance in the New Testament, which would begin the heightened angelic activity that started around that time. As you might recall, there are many angels active around this time announcing the birth of Jesus Christ, appearing to Joseph in dreams, appearing to Mary. All this angel activity begins, and it begins here, this day. And again, it's interesting, the parallels we see here, the parallels between this announcement, the announcement of the birth of Abraham and Isaac's son, Isaac. You might recall in Genesis 18, three figures walk up to Abraham and Sarah outside the tent. One of those, we're told, is the Lord. The other two are angels. And what's the announcement? The announcement, I will surely return to you this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. At both times... Announcement of Gabriel to Zechariah, he's going to have a child. The announcement at the tents to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a son next year. Both times, it's right before the Lord was about to do something that would change history. It's like the separation between heaven and earth became thinner. The separation between heaven and earth, it's almost as heaven got a bit closer at that time, which is why I believe also these angels are more active, more visible. God has come closer. The holy presence of the angels are seen. And now in the temple, we find the angel Gabriel. Similar news to Zechariah. Look at verses 12 through 16. Verses 12 through 16, back in Luke 1, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. By the way, when we, see the, when we see the appearance of angels in the Bible, almost always they have these words on their lips, don't be afraid. Do you know why that is? It's because angels in the Bible aren't chubby little fat babies with wings and arrows with a heart on the end. But these angels appear always in male form and they're always startling to behold. He may have been startling because Zechariah thought he was alone, but if we go with the rest of Scripture, these were majestic beings. They are enveloped with light and something to behold. And he says, don't be afraid because fear fell upon him. Verse 13, the angel says, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink strong drink or wine. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even from his mother's womb. And many. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So the angel says in verse 13 to Zechariah that his prayer has been heard. What prayer? Well, the text doesn't tell us. We don't get any recorded prayer from Zechariah. Was it a prayer for a child? 
Was it a prayer for the redemption of Israel? Was it a prayer that the Messiah would come? We don't know, but we do know this, that even if it was all three of those things, John coming would fulfill all those things. It would be part of the fulfillment for all three of those things to happen. They have a son, the redemption of Israel would come about, and then also the Messiah would come because this is the child that will prepare the way for the Messiah. And John's coming will not only make Zechariah and Elizabeth happy and full of joy, but the angel also says that many will rejoice at his birth. Many will rejoice at his birth. Why? Because of what he represents, because what he's ushering in. Many will rejoice because he's also going to be preparing the heart of the people, bringing them to repentance. And that causes a great rejoicing when your sins are forgiven and when you're at peace with God. And you can be at peace with God if you're not this morning. Know this, that this entire sermon is your invitation. We do not give invitations here at this church, not because I think that they're evil, but just because God doesn't need an invitation to change your heart. And this entire sermon is him calling to you this morning. So if you do not know him, let me encourage you. You can know God. He's made the way for you to be at peace with him. Nothing else is required. It's all been done. Your part is to repent of your sins and just believe that what Jesus did on the cross when he shed his blood and died and rose again from the dead was all the payment that's required for your sins to be forgiven. The righteous was punished as if he was unrighteous so that the unrighteous can be forgiven and have a home in heaven. Isn't that good news? That is good news. And this is what John would usher in. John would usher in news like this. This John, to whom the angel is referring to, we're told, will be great. Says that. You know what makes him great? What makes him so great is the fact that he recognized the greatness of someone else. That's what made him great. He pointed to someone greater. That's what will make you a great Christian is knowing that there's someone greater than you and you point people to him. He will one day say these words as we read at the beginning of Mark. John the Baptist says these words. After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That was his job, pointing to someone greater. That was his whole life. He even said at one point, he must increase. I must decrease. John knew the key to greatness was pointing to the greatest. He'll be great because he'll point everyone to the one who is the greatest. Now look at verse 17. Verse 17 is especially important. There's so much in verse 17. John's ministry will be one that prepares the way, we're told, not for a mere holy man, but for the Lord himself. So verse 17 says that John will go before him. Do you see that? He will go before him. Well, who's the him? Well, in verse 16, right before that, we learn that it's the Lord. But also to put further emphasis on that, after John's born and Zechariah can finally speak again, he's holding his little son and he's saying things over him. He's prophesying over him. And if you've got your Bible open, you can just look uh, in Luke chapter 1, verses 70, verse 76. He says this, 
And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So when he says he will go before him, John the Baptist went before the Lord, God. And John makes it clear in John chapter 3, verse 28, John the Baptist is speaking. And he says, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. I'm not the Christ, I've been sent ahead of him. So when we put those two together, John says, I'm not the Messiah. Essentially, that's what Christ means. I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. And the angel says, he will go ahead of him. And who's the him? It's the Lord. The Messiah is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. The angel also tells Zechariah that this child, John, will fulfill a promise, a prophecy that was made hundreds of years earlier, by the way, by a prophet named Malachi. So look at the next part in verse 17. The next part in verse 17, he says he'll, he'll go before him. How? In the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. All right, so let's break that down. We have two things there. Elijah turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. This coming in the spirit and power of Elijah would have really made Zechariah's ears perk up. Why? Well, because Jews believed this prophecy in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Look at this text. I've got it behind us. Yep, there, there it is. This is a prophecy made by Malachi hundreds of years prior. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now you're saying, okay, Elijah's going to come. This was many, many years after Elijah was dead. Well, he was living. He wasn't on earth. (laughs) Let's say that. He had been gone. The fiery chariot had taken him a long time ago. So what's this business about Elijah coming back? Yes, there was a prophecy that Elijah would come again. By the way, modern-day Jews, Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, I'm talking about just like straight Jews, not Messianic Jews, just, just Jewish people. When they're celebrating Passover, did you know that they leave one chair empty? Always. But the, the place is set for it. Do you know why? For Elijah. They set a place empty for Elijah because they say, essentially, by leaving it open, maybe Elijah will come. Maybe Elijah will knock at our door and we'll have a place ready for him because we know Elijah has to come first before the Messiah will come. And they want the Messiah to come. They're still waiting on their Messiah. Unfortunately, they have not realized that Jesus is their Messiah. Of course, pray that they will. Many Jews have been saved and will be saved. So there's this prophecy that Elijah has to come first. And what's the angel say? He will come, John the Baptist will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now it's interesting because Jesus Christ himself, when speaking about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, said this at one point, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah. 
Who is to come? Jesus said that. So we already have the angel telling us, yeah, he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. If that wasn't enough, Jesus Christ himself said, let me tell you something about John the Baptist. He's Elijah who is to come. He's the one who came. So next, what's this business about turning the hearts of the fathers to the children? What's that? Well, like you saw in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, that's also part of the prophecy. That's also part of what this gentleman will do. And you might say, I don't get it. What's this whole turning hearts of fathers to children? What does that mean? Why is that significant? It even sounds kind of strange to word it that way. I don't get it. Okay. What does it mean? He will restore unity to broken families, undoing the effects of sin. That's what this is a reference to. The undoing of the effects of sin. Why is that? Why is Father's hearts to children undoing the effects of sin? Well, you know, don't you, that the effects of the original sin of Adam and Eve brought strife and enmity into the family unit. Remember part of the curse that God announced to Adam and Eve? He says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. What that means is for him to rule over him. It's the same the same Hebrew word there that God uses in the next chapter when he's speaking to Cain and says, sin is crouching at the door of your heart and its desire is to rule over you. It's funny, they just translate it rule over you in chapter four, but in chapter three, they just say for you. But it's the same, it's the same thing. So he says to Eve, your desire is going to be to rule over your husband, to be the boss, to go opposite to the family structure that God made. Adam first, then Eve. Your desire is going to be the boss. You're going to want to rule over. You're going to want to lead. Then he says to Adam, and you will rule over her. It doesn't mean you're going to be the leader. It means you're going to want to rule like with a heavy hand. Is he going to be the leader? Yes. But he's going to have a tendency, a desire to want to rule with a heavy hand. Do it because I said so. That kind of ruling. So sin, the original sin, brought trouble into the family unit. I don't even have to guess. I mean, I can guess, but I know it's a, a certainty. If I just said, I figure there are some in this room that have come from troubled, broken homes. And I'd probably be 50%, at least 50% right. Do you know why that is? Sin. Sin has brought trouble enmity, strife into families ever since the beginning as part of what sin does. And so it's such great news that we hear about John the Baptist restoring the hearts of fathers to the children, essentially undoing this curse brought on by sin of ruining families. How did he do that? Well, as you recall, John's ministry would be to call people to repent, to turn away from their sin and be baptized. And all that was done to help prepare the way for the Messiah, to have a people whose hearts are ready. So the Messiah comes, John the Baptist can basically say, here they are. Then verse 17 ends with this, which brings us to the end of our message as well. Verse 17 ends with this. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared, just like I said. 
Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3.1 says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is the same one that we're talking about. This is still the prophecy about John the Baptist. God is on his way, and John the Baptist will go before him. John's arrival means the king is coming. The king is on his way. That's what this means. And it will be as big a deal as when the Lord began a nation through Abraham and Sarah. This news that the angel Gabriel delivered means God is on his way. And again, we want to stress because we care about everyone that if you don't yet know the Lord, those of you who haven't truly repented of your sins and come to faith and trust in him, This is the time because the Lord is calling. He's walking through right now calling to you to repent and be reconciled to him. If you don't know him, this can be your first Christmas as a true believer. Your first real Christmas where you're truly celebrating the birth of your king because he's come. I'm going to end with this. So there was something necessary that John came to do before the arrival of the king. So I'm going to end with the words of John the Baptist, which I'm going to make his words to us as well. So in preparation for the king coming, John the Baptist said this, Make straight the way of the Lord, didn't he? Make straight the way of the Lord. Make a straight path for him to travel in your hearts. Amen? Because the king is on his way. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this text of Scripture. We're grateful for the wonderful parallels that we saw as well. And we are grateful for the fact that you did a mighty work when you sent your son Jesus Christ, to this world, it is actually the mightiest work. Lord, we are so grateful for the fact that Jesus Christ came. He became like us so that he could keep the law perfectly and then also die the perfect death, taking the punishment that sinners deserve. We thank you for this time of year that we can Remember these wonderful truths again. We have a Savior who's come to us since we could not go to you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Now we're going to do things a little bit differently. Uh, instead of having.